14 and 15 together. Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Question 14. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature and unable to keep God's law. Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our savior. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of God for the people of God. May be seated. Whoops. As you uh, might have seen, we're doing a little more questions normally. Usually I just take one at a time and one answer and expound the scriptures on that. Today we're doing three, so it's a little bit more. Last week we had uh, our missions, uh, one of our missionaries speak, so we fell behind one of the questions. And then for the next two weeks I'll be doing uh, Palm Sunday next week and the Bible lesson on that. And then the following week is Easter, so I'm trying to cover three at once. I think it works pretty well. As you might have noticed, these three questions all fall in the category of how we as Christians deal with the law of God, how we keep it, and how we don't. So the first question, and this kind of, before I really get started, um, this kind of idea, the, the need for it, the need to understand scripture about how does law and grace work together, how does the Old Testament, the Old Covenant work with the New Testament, the New Covenant, is constantly been in debate since the start of the church. So in the beginning of Acts, when Stephen preached this amazing message in Acts chapter 6, one of the things that Uh, he was accused of, and the early Christians were accused of, and Paul and Jesus and all of them were that. uh, Specifically in Acts 6, 13 and 14, it says, this fellow, Stephen, 
never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. So one of the accusations of, of the early Christians were that they were speaking against Moses, the temple, and the law. These were the main accusations that still goes on today, like what does what is, as you saw in our last question, what is the purpose of the law uh, today? How, how does it work? So those are the questions we're looking at. The first question is, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The answer to that is, since the fall. So we'll look at what the fall is. No mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. No one has. It's what the scripture we read that went along with it says. None is righteous, no, not one. And it says, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. So we don't just break the law one time and even after becoming a believer, we continue to consistently break the law of God. Most sin is listed as transgressions. That's what we read about in our confession today, about our transgressions, repenting from our transgressions. When you transgress something, it has to be something to transgress. So we transgress the law, the law of God. God gives the law, we break it, we transgress it. Our transgressions are our sins. So no one can keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it. But that's since the fall. First, I want to look at just consistently breaking God's law. Do we really do that? Uh, John Owen, in our commentary, uh, he, was, uh, he wrote this book. Uh, I have it and have read it and marked it up a lot. Written in uh, 1656. And it was called The Mortification of Sin. And I'd like to read Romans 8.13 in the King James Version. Okay, I don't generally read from King James, but since he wrote this uh, called The Mortification of Sin, I want it to have the word mortify in it. No, King James has that. And the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, it says this in Romans 8.13. For if you live after the flesh... Ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And basically, John Owen uh, published this book. It was published in 1656, uh, and it was on the mortification of sin based on that we are in a constant battle with transgressing God's law, consistently breaking it. And so we consistently need to work at, and how most translations put the word mortify, is put to death sin. So we're, we're in a battle, and we, we need to uh, put to death sin. And so uh, the answer to this question is, uh, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The Bible makes clear that no. Since the fall, no one uh, keeps the law of God perfectly and that we consistently break it. One of the other commentators in our study is Leo Schuster. He's more of a, a modern-day pastor, and he brings out this explanation of since the fall. So we've already seen that we consistently break God's law, but it's interesting that the answer to this question is since the fall. 
Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law. And he says this, God created us to love, enjoy, glorify, and obey Him, and in so doing, flourish as human beings. That's how things started. He didn't create us unable to keep the law. He created us able to. He created us in that state of obedience to Him, flourishing as human beings. Then he asked, why then do we struggle so much to do that? Like an incredibly sophisticated piece of machinery that's broken, we don't operate the way we were designed to because of the fall. This word, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law. Since the fall. What is the fall? That's part of the fall. This piece of highly sophisticated, man, you look at the complexity of our brain, uh, how fearfully and wonderfully we are made as human beings, made in the image of God uh, to be rulers over all of God's creation, given all that by God, and God saying it was good, and when he created uh, humans, very good, it was very good, amazing uh, uh, creation of God. But the fall, that machinery is broken. We don't operate, we were, that was the way we were designed to. Uh, the fall has marred that creation, broken it. It was broken the relationship with God. So Leon Schuster goes on to say, God created humans with the capacity to keep his law perfectly. But that was lost when the first human and representative of the human race, Adam, chose to rebel and disobey God. He fell. That's what the fall is. Falling into sin, rebellion, and he dragged us all with him. The the Bible describes this in many ways besides the fall. Uh, spiritual rebellion, blindness, illness, bondage, held in captivity to sin, and ultimate death. The wages of sin is death. That's very discouraging, of course, to contemplate. Most people don't like to contemplate the weight of the law and our inability now to keep it because of the law, and that we weren't Uh, created not to be able to we were created able to but since the fall no one is able to following me yeah that's in the the answer and so it's discouraging but giving some glimmer of hope though we're unable to keep the law of god perfectly there is one who kept the law perfectly for us see no mere human is able to keep it see god in his gift of his son wove in Mary's womb a baby from virgin birth without the sin of Adam's seed. No mere human could keep God's law, but Jesus was uniquely woven as being all God, the Word of God made flesh. And yet all human born in the womb of Mary. So very unique answer to this dilemma is Jesus. I have to throw that in every now and then at these questions, you know, just go, okay, breathe a little bit. But we cannot uh, keep the law. We consistently break it. We're in a battle against sin, and we're constantly in a battle. 
Only when we breathe our last breath in this life are we done with our fight of faith here on this earth. You will, you know, I kind of thought as I got older, I'd kind of deal with sin less. And the sins only get a little more complex, more subtle, more insidious. And I was like kind of discouraged with that. And God was like, no, you better be ready to put to deed, to put to death the sins. You better be ready to mortify uh, a sin in your, in, your, in your carnal, fleshly body for, for all your days. Be ready to do battle. Don't ever take off your, your warrior boots. Uh, so, but this scripture from Romans 3 that backs that up is can anyone keep the law? Can we be justified through the law? Can we please God through the keeping of the law? And the answer is no. None are righteous. No, not one. So our question 14 is, well, did God, this is the way that the catechisms work. They work logically and they build on one another. So did God create us unable to keep his law? We kind of looked at that. We've glimpsed at that a little bit already, but it's no. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt corrupt in our nature and unable to keep God's law. Now, this goes against, very strongly against our society because uh, basically what this answer is saying in our culture uh, that we are born in sin and guilt and corrupt in our nature, unable to keep God's law. And what Scripture says and the Scripture that went along with this is Romans 5.12 It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world. See, there was a time when sin wasn't in the world. And it was good. It was very good. But sin came into the world. And then it describes how sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And it very clearly in this passage describes that one man as Adam. In Romans 5. And that death came through sin and then so death spread to all men it spread through to all men all have sinned all romans 3 right after this is going to or before in romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god so that sin spread and in our a commentary uh abraham booth so our commentaries use a real old, generally a couple hundred, maybe older, uh, uh, pastor, theologian. And this Abraham Booth was uh, back in the, the 1700s. And he says this, Adam, being left to the freedom of his own will, he transgressed the law which his maker and sovereign had given him. And the law at that time was, eat from any tree you want flourish in the garden eat from it all enjoy it enjoy my presence in the cool of the evening enjoy oneness with me your creator enjoy everything and the law was but don't eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was the law that was the simplicity of it and adam left to the freedom of his own will transgressed that law of his sovereign maker and Lord and King. That rebellion. That treasonous rebellion. That depravity and ruin. 
Abraham Booth says, Hence, it is all that it is that all men are by nature the children of wrath, adverse to all that is spiritually good and prone to evil, dead in sin. Does the scripture back that up? Yes. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of Adam, sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our nature in Adam is a sin nature, and we all have it. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. It is our nature to disobey. We are children of disobedience and children of wrath. A lot of people don't believe this, but when you become a parent, my oldest son is turning 40 this year, and he just now had two little boys, so he's got one one and one three. And uh, he's already learning, even though him and his wife, not believe, they might not believe that uh, children are born uh, with disobedience in their heart. It doesn't have to be taught. He's beginning to learn it. The little one, when the other little one came along, for no reason, not taught by them, started grabbing the other one and body slamming him to the floor. They didn't teach him to do that. They went up and tried to teach him the opposite. Hey, don't hurt your little brother. I don't like him. Did they teach him to go up? They just sent us a video. They're on vacation. You know, Kai's sitting there playing with this, you know, he's doing his own thing. You know, he's mellow. He's like a little over one. And Noah comes up. He's barely three. Grabs the things from him and starts throwing them away from him. You know, and you hear my son yell, don't do that. He didn't teach him to do that. One year old, three year old. Uh, there's a comedian, a uh, secular comedian, but yet he actually agrees on this point. He, he is like, I was like, wow, this dude's kind of preaching about original sin, you know? And he's going off on his kids and his two sweet little daughters, and uh, they're playing, and they, they, a friend comes over, and, uh, you know, they're toddlers, they're tiny, and they start playing together, and all of a sudden, this uh, person that came over with their little girl grabs one of the toys from his little girl and just rips it from her. And then she grabs her and bites her. <laughs> and he goes, I didn't teach her to bite. And the other parents like, I didn't teach her to rip toys. We're good parents. We're, you know, that's not because of us. And he's like, you're right. It's not. We don't teach those things. It's their nature. I was like, preach it on. Preach it on. You don't know it, but you're preaching God's word. Sin has affected every part of us. We're born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. It's self-evident. At least when you become a parent and you see those kinds of things, you realize that. Did God... 
The next, um, so in conclusion to that, did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation has fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, unable to keep God's law. So question 15 then asks, after these questions on the law, why the heck do we have the law then? We, you know, why did it come? Why, what's the purpose of it? No one can keep it perfectly. You know, our nature is completely uh, disobedient to it. Why did it come? These questions are answered in the Scripture in several places. But in the Scripture uh, that we are given is Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so what this is, is pointing us to our need of a Savior. But then it says, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we're going to look at kind of the process of that scripture of what the law's purpose is. I think uh, in our uh, commentary, Ligon Duncan, he's a modern day theologian, He's breaking down that answer and that scripture, and he's saying the law of God helps us to, and he breaks it down into four things, to know God, know ourselves, know our need, and know the life of peace and blessedness. Now, when you think of that know God, how does the law, what's the purpose of the law in doing that? The answer to the question is that way, uh, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And the answer is that we may know the holy nature and will of God. That's knowing God. The first thing that the law does is let you know who God is. It lets you know His holy nature. God is revealing Himself in the law. This is who I am. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't create an idol. Don't uh, you know, steal from each other. This is how you live in relationship to one another. This is the reflection of the holy nature of God. So God gave His law and it's a reflection of Him. It's not just rules laid out, but it is a reflection of the holy nature of God. So we see God, His character, through the law given. We see His holy nature. That's the first point that it does. The law of God helps us to know God. The Catechism answer says, and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts. That's the second part. The law's purpose is to teach us about ourselves. It shows us God's holy, and we ain't. That's what it's showing us. The law, specifically in the Word of God in Romans 3.20, says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It shows you. The law shines and says, no, you aren't. You are disobeying this. Well, no, I'm, I'm keeping it pretty good. No, you aren't. You're disobeying my holy commandments. Well, I'm doing pretty good here and there. Maybe that one I break a little bit. But, you know, and this is the reasoning. This is the denial, you know, of, of, of humanity. But the law shines its light brightly and perfectly upon a sinful man and its ability. It teaches us. It gets us to know ourselves. It reveals ourselves, especially our sinful nature and our disobedience and our inclination towards sin. We don't like it. But God has purposes in doing that. And the purpose is 
that the law of God helps us to understand our need. What's our greatest need? Our greatest need is for a Savior. And that's what this scripture said in Romans 3, uh, 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in sight. You will never keep rules well enough. You will never have karma outweigh the bad. You will never have and be reincarnated enough to ever be good enough to please God. There is no other religion that offers grace that you need a savior it always offers you some type of way of a method of working your way up steps and religion in has infiltrated that kind of same works mentality has worked into christianity that you can please god if you do just all the right things but scripture is against that it is the law shining on you so brightly that you will never please God. You will never be just uh, before God by you doing anything right or good. You will never make it that way, the law says. And the reason the law does that is a good thing because it gets us to humbly admit our need of a Savior and that I have no other way out but unless God provides for me a Savior and that Savior is Jesus. That's the, that's the culmination of all the Scriptures is leading to Jesus on this cross dying for us in our place. And so the law's purposes work all that out. That the law of God helps us to know God, His holy nature. Helps us to know ourselves, our sinful nature. It helps us to understand our need of a Savior. But... On top of that, the law of God also, the answer says, teaches us and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. So a lot of people have asked me, okay, yeah, you know, Jesus kept the law perfectly for us, and, and uh, it points us to a need for a Savior. I understand that shows us holy nature of God, reveals our own sin, reveals our need of a Savior. Great. But what now? I'm a believer. I'm a Savior. So what's the law doing in my life now? And that's what it goes on to say. The purpose of the law is to teach and exhort us to live a life worthy of that Savior. It still lays out the groundwork that this is how you live out a life, especially when you look at all the commandments uh, of the ten, the final five, all deal with our relationship with one another. God wanted a community that lived together on earth and a whole Old Testament is about this group of people he calls together and forms out of this man, Abraham, who's from the Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, Babylonian Eastern, and he takes him and he creates a whole nation out of him through Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob who has 12 sons, and he brings this group of people together because God desires to have a group of people here on this earth that are living out a life worthy of God and reflecting his light and his glory by loving one another in a community that displays that beauty. And we know it got marred. We know that they became and acted like and did worse than all the nations around them. And we know that they consistently broke the law. And we know that that was pointing them to their need of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ who would come and do a work that the law could never do. Wondering in awe about maybe one day 
will actually be able to please God somehow and display His glory. We just can't seem to do it. Galatians 3 asks this same question that this catechism. Why uh, why the law? What's the purpose of the law? And Galatians 3 asks this question in verse 19. It says, why was the law given at all? Because Paul is debating about the promises of God and the promises of God given to Abraham 430 years before the law came and then the law came and all this. So why was it even given? And the answer he gives there in Galatians, verse 23, he says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up. Locked up in custody under the law. Cursed not to be able to keep it. But locked up in it. For what reason? We've looked at to point us to Jesus. Kept us in custody. Uh, the law was our guardian. Another word is tutor that leads us to Christ. Tutoring, guarding us, keeping us under captivity of our inability to keep it until Jesus would come, until that promise would come. So it was a, a mediator, a temporary thing given until Jesus would arrive and we could place our faith in Him who kept the law for us, our only hope in Jesus. And after that, we are to be clothed in Christ and now live out a life worthy of that Savior. We're not trying to earn our salvation. We have it. We have it fully bestowed on us by grace. And a heart of gratitude begins to boil, boil up within us, clothed in Him, forgiven. Wretches that, like we sing about, but let Christ dying in our place for us. And out of that grateful heart, the law now becomes to us a desire to live that out in community with one another in the beauty of Christ displayed through His church, the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is to live out that love of one another that the world looks at and goes, what the heck are you all doing? How do you do that? Tim Keller tells this story of he was uh, one of the members of his church and he was working. He was a manager in uh, New York's very work-oriented, you know, put it in, work, earn. You work 80 hours a week, I work 90. You work 90, I work 120. Come on, get off of your lazy butt and get to work. It's about earning. It's about working. It's about producing. And in this place, you run over people to get there. And that's known. And so a lady was working. She made a horrible mistake. The main boss came down ready to fire her, you're out. And the uh, boss over her, the manager over, got in between them and said, it was my fault, I didn't oversee this correctly, and if you're going to fire anybody, fire me. And he goes, okay, if you're going to speak for her and she's that good of an employee, we'll keep her, and turned around and walked back. And she, she had been working under him for quite a while, and she said, who does that? She goes, I've worked my butt off under people all my life here in this city, and I've had lots of people take credit for what I've done, but I've never had anybody take the blame for what I've done. Who are you? And he said, I'm a Christian. And he, she said, where do you go to church? And she said, Redeemer Presbyterian, you know, uh, Tim Keller's church. And that, that's the thing that the, the, the church is supposed to be. 
the church is to be doing things different than the world does. It's to boggle the mind of the natural mind and say, who are you and who would do that in this world? And that's what the church is to be. They're to see the church loving one another in such a way they want to meet the God that you know that's actually real and that's actually changed your life. So the purpose of the law isn't just to get us to know the holy nature of God, our sinful nature, and to lead us to a Savior. That is first and foremost the purpose of the law. But the law also teaches us us and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. Can you say amen? amen? Amen. We need to live a life keeping the law of God as first and foremost in our hearts to actually not steal, not, not lie to one another. When you lie to someone, uh, you're lying to yourself. When you steal from someone, you're stealing from yourself. You're stealing from what the glory of God meant in this earth to give you to flourish. When you covet, when you bear false testimony against your neighbor all these things we mar the the community and the law still stands to say this is how i want my people to be and this is how i want my people to love one another so let's lead lives worthy of our savior as believers amen we're going to take communion together We're going to sing together a final psalm of praise to God. In the Holy Scriptures, there is a story in John 4 after the Jesus is doing some theological discussions with the woman at the well. His disciples return and they ask about if he had somehow ate they had gone in to get food and Jesus said this profound statement he said uh, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me my father in heaven my food my seven course meal of pleasure and divine life is in fellowship with God through eating with him His commandments are not burdensome. They are my joy to live out. His holy law is my life and my food. And that's who we want to be like. We want to be like Jesus. We want His commandments not to be burdensome, but to be our delight, to be our joy. And what one of the things communion is, is the coming around a meal and reminding ourselves of that. Reminding ourselves we want to be like Jesus who delighted to do the will of his Father and keep the commandments perfectly. We want to live a life worthy of our Savior and keep the commandments like he kept them, to to delight to keep them. And we take this meal together to remind us of that. And the bottom is a A little cracker represents the bread. And Jesus said he was the bread of life. He came to do his Father's will. And he pleased the Father. God spoke out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He truly did it for you. 
And in communion, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge the bread of life as Jesus, and that his body was broken for us, given for us, that we might have life in his name. So Jesus offered up the bread, and he gave thanks for it, and he said, this is my body. Take and eat of it, and do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. In the same manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it, and when you do, do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. Thank you for the body and for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins. All of our transgressions are forgiven. All of our consistently breaking your law, God, you have put on the shoulders of our Savior, Jesus Christ, upon that tree, upon the cross. He bore them for us. We thank you and praise you. Help us, Lord, now to give praise worthy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.